0: Trust and Obey is the title of a hymn. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. I'm going to talk about obedience this morning. That seems to be a major shift between Exodus 6 and 7, is the lack of complaint from Moses and how he is known enough of Yahweh to, at least by the way the text reads, which came from his own hand, under the inspiration of the Spirit. Moses reflects on and writes about the Exodus experience and the plagues that precede them, and he does so, describing himself in terms of Of complaint and protest about his sending prior to chapter 7. I'm not eloquent enough. You might say, I'm not young enough, he might have said. Uh, Pick somebody else besides me. They won't listen to me. Implication implied is, I was once a murderer here. I've sinned. But now in 7, We find Moses as a better example of not only knowing what God wants from him, but putting obedience on display. In fact, as we read chapter 7, you're going to see a contrast between the obedience, in simple terms, of Moses and Aaron and the disobedience, in very simple language, of Pharaoh. I hope that you'll mark that. Before we read it, a few more things about obedience. It's hard to take instruction from someone if you don't trust that they have your best interest at heart. It does you very little practical good to say that you trust someone if you do not allow that person the authority to speak commands that you will seriously consider following. Let's use a metaphor to understand obedience. Consider money in terms of money. If trust is the currency of healthy relationship, then obedience is the purchasing power. What a lot of good money does you if you never use it to purchase a good or a service. But a willingness to do a thing means very little without the currency to secure it. So trust is like money and obedience is like purchasing. Happiness in the Lord God involves both trusting and obeying Him as your authority. A benevolent authority an authority nonetheless. As we've been looking at the Bible book of Exodus in the first six chapters, we've heard of how God's people from Abraham to Jacob or Israel's 12 sons knew something of God. We've tracked about how God's people got to Egypt and how they were mistreated by their current king and kings prior for centuries for the kings had forgotten about Joseph and about his command and about how the Hebrew people were bringing blessing to the Egyptian people. God's name was known by the Hebrew people, by the Israelites, but it was fuzzy. It was in the rearview mirror a bit. There was a lack of clarity about the known doctrine of God. And it was now time for God's name to be made more fully known. And that was to be done by, first, God making himself more fully known to Moses, the great deliverer of the Hebrew people from Egypt. And, by extension, his prophet, or the mouthpiece of Moses... Aaron, the battle that we are going to read about today, that is waged in chapter 7, but also all the way through chapter 11, and into the final plague in the Exodus, the battle needs to not be understood simply as a physical battle between competing peoples. It really is to be better understood as a spiritual battle between Yahweh and Satan's emissaries, between good and evil. If you are a chronology person, if that helps you get into the, the meaning of a, of a text that you're reading, just take today and go back 3,500 years and you're close to the time when these events took place, 3,500 years ago. What you have before you is indeed an ancient piece of literature. It's also an inspired piece of literature, something that God gave to us through the hand of Moses after the Exodus. In fact, we attribute all five first books of the Bible to the hand of Moses, with a little bit of finishing work, likely by Joshua. 3,500 years ago, 1446 B.C., Moses himself almost was never here, for he could have died in the Nile River. He was miraculously saved. That's the events of chapter 2. Then he was raised in Pharaoh's household. And moving from centuries of years to 80 years in chapter 2, we narrow down in chapter 3 forward to just a year, and we learn something of God's character and His intent to deliver His people. This stark change from chapter 6 and 7, as I've said, can be described in a word, and that is obedience. And I hope today that you will be guided through this sermon to greater obedience to the Lord your God because of what he has done to prove trustworthy to you and because of his faithfulness to you. He is faithful and he will do it. As we read Exodus 7, I want you to consider three aspects of this text, beginning with verses 1 to 7. Consider how he prepares his people, the called. And to follow with alliteration, consider in verses 8 to 13 how he provides for the called. And then finally, in verses 14 to 25, thirdly, consider how God punishes oppressors of the called. So he's faithful to prepare the called, to provide for the called, and then to punish the oppressors of the called. So listen for that as we just read straightway through Exodus chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent." So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, did. And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And... There shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Pharaoh did the same by their secret arts." So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto those who hear. This is Exodus 7, verses 1 to 25. And... I'm explaining God's Word to us today on three parts. That is, His preparing and providing for His called people and His punishing of the oppressors of God's called people. This is a text that I pray will encourage you in your obedience to the Lord to put God's fame on display because of how He prepares you as a called person. Think about verse 1 and then verse 2. Who made Moses, to put it in catechism terms? Who is it that made Moses? God made Moses. In whose image did God make Moses? God made Moses in his own image, right? So who is Moses like to Pharaoh? Moses is like God to Pharaoh. Now there's certainly more going on here with this simile, but not less. When we are obedient to God, we are witnessing God to the disobedient in the world. We are confronting them with the fame of God's known name. When Jesus is asked to pay taxes, he draws a coin from the water and says, Render unto Caesar's image what is Caesar's, and render unto God's image what is God's. God created you in his image. Male and female, he created them. And so, together, he made you. In our very gendering at birth and in affirming God's assignment of your gender at birth, you are witnessing to God's name. You are like God to someone by being obedient to the very basics of creation. In fact, this text is a major explanation of how God is the creator, and he has the authority to create the water and the land and the sky, and he has the authority to decreate, which is what you see with this water turning into blood. In fact, what's happened since very early in human history is people have gravitated east of Eden and east of a knowledge of God as their creator And so what you have in Egypt now is over 80 pagan deities, a pantheon of gods, false gods, that is. And the Exodus is a statement against those gods. It is a conquest of those gods. It's a systematic deposing of those false deities. And it is a restoration of Eden, at least in creed. God prepares His people, His called people, to testify... By virtue of who they are and also what they say, and to testify through obedience to the disobedient that they are accountable to the one true God. Aaron was to be like a prophet or a messenger of God's words from Pharaoh. Aaron was three years older than Moses. I'm told that an 80 year old is also called an octogenarian. I read that in a commentary, I thought that was kind of neat. I didn't know that before, so I've learned something new an octogenarian. So 80 years old was Moses, and Aaron was 83. God doesn't call the qualified, as one preacher said. Instead, he qualifies the called. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. You might think you're too old to be used of God. Tell that to Moses. He protested the same way, didn't he? He's in the final third of his life when his most obedience happens. Scary confrontation, really, if you think about him going, to stand before the most powerful man in the known world. The Bible kind of carries that theme, doesn't it? Nebuchadnezzar, Caesar. You have these testimonies before powerful kings and their underlings. And obedience happens. And it is a testimony to the fact that Yahweh is God. And that all these pagan deities, these animistic these animistic gods that, that folks worship are false, that they're not true. You might not think you're too old to be used of God. In fact, you might think you're quite young. You might think that you're too young to worry about being used of God. Tell that to Samuel. Read the book of 1 Samuel. That's where we're at in our Bible reading in a year plan right now, in the McShane plan, for those that follow that one, as I do. Samuel replaced rebellious older sons of a feckless priest named Eli. God can raise up sons from rocks, Christ says. Yours is not to worry about whether or not you're useful. Yours is to obey the clear commands of God. You might think you're too unimpressive to be used of God. As I've said, the apostles were called unschooled, ordinary men. You might think you're not well enough read or spoken to be used of God. We learned in Sunday school this morning that John Owen was impressed with the plain-spoken John Bunyan. In fact, he said he would want to give up all of his powers of intellect if he could just preach like Bunyan unschooled, ordinary men and women, used of God. Yours is to obey. You might think your life's too busy to obey, but God's commands are His means of blessing you Is as a working-class aged person. To disobey is to disabuse yourself of God's good things. As the old song says, trust and obey. But there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The striking difference between chapter 7 and prior is the emphasis on Moses' obedience. No more excuses. I wonder if you've studied the commands of God enough yet to know what they are. You need to know what God commands you so that you know what God expects of you. It's not exactly the same as it was for Moses, but it's quite similar in its moral and proclaiming qualities. You are to follow the natural moral law in both the first and second table of the commandments. You are to worship God only. You are to love your neighbor by being content with what you have and not coveting, by pursuing sexual purity, keeping relations within the bounds of a covenant union of marriage between a man and a woman. You are to pursue peacemaking instead of pugilism and parenting with faithfulness. You are needing to know these commands. You're needing to know them so that you can do them. So there's a learning aspect to this. You need to pursue obedience as you're pursuing knowledge as well. I've said previously here that part of the Great Commission is teaching believers to obey all that the Lord has commanded us. Where we find the all there is in here, in this book. And this is not a book that's so much about us as it is about God. Let us not be so vain that we think this book is about us. This book is about God. It is his biography, and in places, it's quite explicit with how he wants to be referred to and who he is. So grow in the knowledge as well as the grace of our Lord. Exodus is about teaching us things that we might then know how to obey. But we do need to obey we need to get to the point to where we are better described as being obedient to God than being disobedient to God. We need to be able to be described as those that speak all that the Lord commands. So there is a proclaiming quality, a speaking quality to what God commands both Moses and you to do. It's not always comfortable The New Testament tells us, of course, that when we give a reason for the hope that we have, that we are to do it with gentleness and respect. So it's not that we are to be bullish. However, such speaking about who God is will invariably lead to confrontation, now won't it? It will lead to confrontation with the fact that you just don't live your life by the same set of precepts that the disobedient do. It'll lead to confrontation because you speak truths without pretense to people that need to hear it. There are differences, but these are parallels with Moses' call and command. When he spoke to Pharaoh, it was quite confrontational. When you confront people with their disobedience and call them to obey the Lord, some will, and some will not, and some will not for now. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. He surely heard the witness of the early believers, and he persecuted and even killed the likes of Stephen, the first recorded martyr, Acts chapter 7, and yet at the same time, in the Lord Jesus' time, he was pleased to meet with Paul and to save his cold dead heart that was steeped in religious learning, but far, far, far from the ways of God. And he became, born again as we say, became an obedient person on the main toward God. And so, I think it is important for us to speak faithfully to people about God and leave the results to God. If you are too concerned with controlling the results, your quality control will get in the way of your reckless abandon for simply sharing a message that is bound to be confrontational. Wasn't it confrontational for you when you first heard it? It was for me. I don't like the idea that Jesus had to die on a cross for me, that I was the reason he went to the cross, because of my sin. I don't like the fact that I can't save myself, if I'm speaking in the flesh, that is. I don't like the fact that I'm as bad as Hitler or Mao or Popot, because I, too, in my heart, am a murderer, an abuser, an impurist, a blasphemous pagan worshiper. That's the witness of Scripture. If you explain to someone that they are lawbreakers before God and already separated and already condemned to hell, before you explain to them the good news of Christ that sets them free from all of that, it's bound to be confrontational before it's comforting, right? That's the nature of the gospel. It doesn't omit the law. It speaks the truth of the law, which as Galatians says, in another way, serves as a schoolmaster to those that will become believers. The law, it shapes our consciences and guides us toward the true gospel of Christ. In our obedience, we must speak things. We must know things to speak. We must live certain ways. But all this is centered around how trustworthy that our Lord is. He is so trustworthy. All the world points to His sustaining of His creation. But you, like me, have disobeyed. That disobedience, and I speak now directly to the unbeliever in the room, your disobedience severs you from the God that made you. You are separated from him because of your sin and your disobedience. God's grace is made known to you through Christ, His whole life's work culminated on a cross with His death 2,000 years ago. But He did not stay dead. He rose from the grave, and His free gift is offered to you. He offers His active and passive obedience in place of your disobedience, but you must receive it. And that sweet exchange, His life for yours, His obedience in place of your disobedience. That is central to your salvation. So, I plead with you to receive it this morning. I plead with you to stop trusting yourself, obeying your own whims, wishes, for God's desires are good desires, and He knows better than you do. I plead with you to stop trusting in a false God, whether that be a false god that provides pleasure for you, anesthesia from a guilty conscience, false god of sport, of convenience, or whether you have chosen to obey some strong man in the world, as if just because that person speaks loudly, they necessarily speak for God. It's not always true. Trust in the Lord in all your ways, the Bible says. And if you acknowledge Him, He makes your paths straight. The book of Proverbs makes this clear. Call to Him in prayer, even with us today. Ask Him to give you assurance of deliverance from your sin and identification with His people. This is what the Exodus points to, is great deliverance. God is a deliverer. You repent of your rebellion and believe on Christ for deliverance. And as many of you who call on the name of the Lord this morning will be saved on the day of the Lord. You will be saved. Only trust Him. And don't hold back. Folly pursues human fame. What Christians do is make famous the name of Christ. We make the Lord's name famous. Yahweh, God, being made famous. God promises something, and it really explains our next two points. Look at verse 4. He promises that Pharaoh will not listen to the called messenger of Yahweh, that is Moses and Aaron. By extension, and he says that he will lay his hand on Egypt and bring out his people out of the land of Egypt, and he will do it through great acts of judgment. So it is really there how, secondly, God provides for his people, and thirdly, how God, in fact, punishes the oppressors of his people. So let's take it that way. Beginning in verse 8 and following through 13, our second point is how God provides for the call. And I hope that you'll be encouraged in your obedience to the Lord because of how God provides for you. Think about it that way. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. A serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So here God is providing for the called. God provides deliverance for his people. Hard-of-hearing and hard-hearted Pharaoh refuses to obey the Lord's command, as seen and articulated through his, mo- his messengers, Moses and Aaron. He has been very clearly commanded, Let my people go from your land. Let them go. That's the command. So God is here now offering a preliminary sign to the ten signs that we often call the ten plagues on Egypt. Think of this as uh, pre-season warm-ups. To the main season. It's the staff swallowing serpent sign. And there's a lot conveyed in this little bit of text here, but we've seen this before. God has prepared this through Moses in his experience on Mount Horeb. Pharaoh expects, in fact, he demands a miracle if he is to hear from Yahweh. Now, there is no written text at this time. The Bible itself is something that we have Moses forward in terms of the Old Testament being written between 1400 and 400 B.C., and then in terms of a New Testament being written... Will you hand it to me? You get it for me? Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. I fell out of my Bible. It's very nice of you to do that. And the Second Testament, the New Covenant, the New Testament was written in a very short period of time, in the very first century A.D., and then the canon was closed. But remember, this was 1446 B.C. We don't have any written text yet. And so... What's going on here is God is affirming his word-giving power through signs. He is giving signs, even though we are not to ask for signs necessarily today. The New Testament teaches that rather clearly. But Pharaoh is expecting a sign if he's going to believe that this is a greater God, or even still yet the God of creation. Pharaoh himself considers himself among the gods. And in fact, he's interacting with many animistic gods. And this preliminary miracle points to how God deposes those gods, as I've said, and declares himself as the God of creation. Now, there's something that needs to be repeated that was said a couple of weeks ago by Pastor Kurt uh, when he preached. It has to do with this, this serpentine language. As I've said, Moses wrote Genesis as well as Exodus. And Satan is first presented in the book of Genesis as a serpentine figure. In fact, the first gospel is recorded in Genesis chapter 3, the very first few pages of Scripture. And it records an episode where Satan will strike out at God's people, but that a child will one day be born that will crush the head of the serpent. This language is repeated in different ways throughout Scripture, and Romans makes it very clear and toward the end of Romans that Christ crushed the head of the serpent, Satan, on the cross, that his work on the cross was a... Was a devastating and final blow to Satan. And even though he flails today, he has been defeated. Revelation talks of a scary serpentine figure in relation to the Antichrist, and we may read a little bit of that in conclusion of the sermon today. The serpent can make certain secret arts happen. In fact, in verse 11 and verse 22 of our Exodus chapter 7, we see applications of The serpent's figures or Satan's figures, his emissaries, being able to do certain signs through the secret arts that mirror God's signs. We see the same thing in Revelation where Satan evokes certain signs that mirror or they counterfeit God's signs. And that's a way of understanding this text to be sure. But the serpent, Satan, is no match for God's strong arm. His rod and staff strengthen his people. He provides for his people. And in Exodus 7, the deliverer's staff turns into a serpent and swallows up the other serpents. It sounds like the language in Corinthians that's borrowed from the prophet Isaiah. Death is swallowed up in victory. And in fact, there is some freight that gets carried there, I think, with the language of swallowed up. Look at verse 12 of Exodus 7. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Michael Morales wrote an excellent little theology on Exodus in which he pointed out that the only other time this Hebrew word is used, swallowed up, is in the Red Sea episode itself in Exodus chapter 15, verse 12, I believe, where it speaks of being swallowed up, swallowed up. And so, when we read here and think about how Exodus in the Red Sea episode, how the enemies of God are swallowed up and drowned, we see a foreshadowing of that in Exodus chapter 7, verse 12 in our text today, with this staff serpent swallowing up the others. It's not differently. It's not that there's no power in the fallen angels with Satan from heaven, it's not that there's no power in those that would do evil and forever disobey Yahweh, it's not that there's no power, it's that there's greater power in Yahweh. And even when it feels like he's slow in coming, he's always right on time to make his name famous and to deliver his people ultimately from the sting of death. Death is swallowed up in victory. And that is being conveyed as early as Exodus chapter 7 verse 12 with Aaron's staff swallowing up their staff. But Pharaoh is is hard-hearted. He's disobedient. His Reasoning is not going to get to his heart. As one philosopher said, the heart has reasons that reason knows not of. The heart must be penetrated through the Almighty. And it was God's purposeful intent to see Pharaoh's hard heart continually hardened, to testify against him and build a case against him forever and ever as an oppressor of God's people and duly punished forever and ever for crimes against God's people. But a crime has to be committed for justice to be served, right? And so we have to live between the already of Satan being assuredly defeated and the not yet of Christ's second coming and making everything right on the earth in which we live. And so between the cross and consummation, we live in this time where crimes are being committed against God's people. And so to stay with the bright red lines of our points, God prepares His people though we need to be obedient. He provides for his people, and he also punishes the oppressors of God's people. Let's stay with this second point for just a minute longer. How does he provide for his people? Well, here he provides just in the nick of time, where this staff swallows up their staffs. Now, you can get in the weeds with this, and, and why is a staff a serpent a serpent a staff, and what kind of secret arts did they use, and maybe it was a snake they'd trained to act stiff, and then come back out, but there's there's a lot more going on than whether or not we can precisely figure out exactly what kind of secret arts they use to mirror the supernatural revelation of God through his servant, Moses and Aaron, servants Moses and Aaron. Something different that's going on here is a direct assault against Pharaoh as a god. Pharaoh had a crown that had a serpent, a cobra-like figure, on the front of it. Serpents are associated as well with sea monsters and languages used throughout the Scripture to describe Satan as such. The text of Scripture is drawing a clear connection between Pharaoh's action against God's people and Satan's action against God's people, past, present, and future. What God does here is provide for His people in the midst of their persecution. Remember, they're making bricks without straw. And this serpent swallows up the others, this staff. And this same staff is used to describe in the first miracle, which we're going to go through today, this first plague officially, water turned to blood. It's described as being used to tap the life-giving Nile River I mean, it would have been straight desert for Egypt without the Nile River. It's what gave them fertility for land. And they believed in that there were gods associated with the river, Osiris for one, and others, and that fertility was associated with the river and protection was associated with the river. And so what we're going to see here is this staff is now used as, I can defeat your great serpents, your great sea monsters. Consider it like this now in Third and finally, how God punishes oppressors of the called, and it's even wrapped up in what He does for His people, salvation through judgment. Look at verse 14 afresh. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. Now this is in a critical verse, verse 15, to understanding what's going on in chapter 7 and in the front end of these plagues, these signs and wonders. It is likely that Pharaoh, in the morning, ritually, was going down to the Nile, and it was an act of, of pagan worship. In all likelihood, this was a, an experience expressing homage to the gods. And as he goes to the Nile, what God has told to Moses, not necessarily Aaron, although it's baked into the cake, but now we're talking directly to Moses, I want you to meet him in the midst of of his worship of false gods and of his obsession with his self and implied his lack of regard for his own people let alone my people and I want you to say something to him so he did, he goes and he's got that staff and it says in verse 16, you shall say to Pharaoh the Lord the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness or worship me in the wilderness, it's a different kind of king than you and it says though But so far, critical to the theme, what has Pharaoh not done? He has not obeyed. He's been disobedient. And the cost of disobedience is ultimate and high. You don't want to be, listen to me, friends, you do not want to be ultimately disobedient to your Creator. You want to grapple with obedience in this life. Now, I don't mean to advocate that that obedience that you're grappling with is empowered by your willpower, I want to read to you from the Great Baptist Confession, three different chapters. In chapter 7, it says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their creator, yet they never could. And then in chapter 11, Christ, by His obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified and did by the sacrifice of Himself in the blood. And then in chapter 26, All persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel in obedience unto God by Christ according unto it. Thus begin to see there what it looks like as worshipers of God to begin to live obedient because of Christ's obedience on display for us. So God wrought obedience in you is used to preach the elimination of alienation between Adam's race and Yahweh and the elimination of ignorance of the only original, Yahweh, Elohim, personal creator God for you. God here is saying that there doesn't have to be this alienation anymore, and you don't have to be ignorant of who I am anymore, and you're part of the, the due process of me making these truths known to all of creation, everybody. And so God is actually providing a testimony to the disobedient, even as he provides for you. Knowledge of who He is and what He's done on your behalf. And it is, to put it in Colossians terms, it is God's energy within us, welling up within us, that causes us to then seek to live obediently and to even be rightly described as more or less obedient toward God than the disobedient who have no regard for God and His commands. Now, when it says here in verse, let's find it, Verse 15, take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. It is setting up something for us in this third and last aspect of our sermon about punishing oppressors of the called that is important. It says in verse 17, Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Now that is a theme of Exodus. Even more than deliverance, which is a, th- a theme, I believe it's a sub theme, a theme of Exodus is God making himself known. I am the Lord. And he says, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Even if you deny me, if you're disobedient to me, you're going to know who I am. I've already said, I don't know who this God is. Well, you're going to know who I am. I'm going to show you with irrefutable evidence. And he says, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water of it as an island. It shall be turned into blood. And it gives this expose of the, the, the fish, the lack of protein, the lack of water. you got food and water, stinkage hygiene, extra work on the Egyptians, and it seems like Pharaoh doesn't care. He's not a very benevolent king. This is a punishment, but the irony in this is, and this is what you need to get your mind around, is that we have good evidence in Exodus to believe that some of the Egyptians, despite Pharaoh's tyrannical and and wanton disobedience of Yahweh, some of the Egyptians seem to come to believe in this one true God. Because a mixed multitude is described as leaving in the Exodus. And so this salvation, God gets glory, as one author put it, in salvation through judgment. God wouldn't get glory were it not for the judgment aspect as well as the salvation aspect, which is points three and two in reverse. So God provides for His people as He's prepared His people. But in preparing his people and providing for his people, he's also bringing sure and certain punishment on the oppressors of God's people if they don't like Paul, turn. If they don't like the mixed multitude, some of the Egyptians turn. If they don't turn and see and worship God as the one true God and begin to obey his commands. And so you have a very uh, poignant statement in verse 23. Pharaoh turned. He didn't turn to God. He turned and went into his house. Right? And he didn't even take this to heart. Oh, I would plead with you this morning, friends, beloved before God, may your heart be softened and not hardened toward who God is and what He commands and His great affection for you. Your heart soft. Listen to me, believers. You need to nurture a softened heart By humbly coming to worship each week, being humble before the other believers, taking a humble and sincere posture to the study of the Word. You do not want to have to face God's discipline correctively to bring you back to solid fellowship in your relationship with Him. Instead, you want today to let these words be formative and maybe slightly corrective. If you have been distant from His ordinary means of grace... And if you've started to be hard, soften up because Christ has first softened your heart through his work in you. And come back to fuller fellowship. But this hardening of the heart is really not about the believers and our plight. This hardening of the heart is described as Pharaoh's hard heart that God ensures his heart right to the end. And he will be judged. He is a type, for sure, of all the disobedient reflective of serpentine figures that try to topple the one true God throughout Scripture. And he cares so little for his people and so much for himself that it says here that these people, in all of their plight, he just turns a blind eye to. He doesn't pay any attention to it. Other of the plagues, other plagues will say similar language. He's just not going to care that they're having to dig for water to drink, and it's bloody and it's damaged and they don't have good food. And, and it's just he just doesn't care. He won't listen to God. He won't hear God, the senses, the smell. Nothing affects Pharaoh. He's impenetrable with this good news of who God is. And so he faces the white-hot wrath of God. And he faces God's judgment, therefore, on him because of his rebellion against God. Slaying the serpentine sea dragon is a biblical theme and a theme in Exodus. This is a creation theme as well, as I've said. Consider a few other places in Scripture where this is talked about. Consider Ezekiel chapter 29, verse 3 later. It says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the streams, that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. This is worth just thinking on for just a moment as the prophet Ezekiel is looking back centuries later, remembering the Exodus, remembering wicked king Pharaoh. He says the great dragon. He references the Nile and self-indulgence, self-worship, self-adulation. Jump all the way to the last book of the Bible. Consider Revelation 12, 9 to 11. Though there's many more texts that speak of our ancient enemy this way and describe this as a spiritual battle. But let this make more sense of Exodus 7 to you. You have this fuller revelation of Scripture. Revelation 12, 9 and following. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called, what is he called? The devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. He goes on to say, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brother's And that is what Satan lives to do, is accuse the true believers day and night. That's why confession and assurance of pardon is so important in all of our Lord's Day worship services. Yes, Satan, we've got reasons to confess sin. And no, Satan, we're not eternally damned like you because we have a great Savior. Every single week we do that. Why do we do that? Because we need to agree with the accusation that we're sinners. And yet at the same time, we need to agree with God that we're saved. We don't do a loop-de-loop around our sins. We face them, but we face them in sure and certain hope of eternal life because of the active and passive obedience of Christ on our behalf. And so, There's wonderful truths there. Whenever we look at this text, what we see again and again in Scripture, Revelation, that there's this parallel with this sea serpentine-type imagery. It says that we have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for we loved our lives not even unto death. We recognize there's something greater at stake than whether or not we have this wonderful, wonderful little life. We have a life that is to be lived for Christ, even if it costs us our very breath, that we then have life eternally with Christ. Listen to Revelation 12:2, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, again see the twinnings, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. So back in Exodus 7 now, to kind, of, to kind of bring this back together. Exodus 7 is carrying no obscure theme in God's biographical books of books, the Bible. The, the broadcasting of God's name is primary to the meaning of the text. Pharaoh's firstborn was considered an incarnate God. And this killing in the sea would header and footer that final plague of the firstborn where God's firstborn son Israel would come out and be delivered but Pharaoh's firstborn son would be killed he would not be passed over he would face the righteous wrath of God against him and by extension the children all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians would die God punishes those who oppress his people you may not do it exactly in the moment that you demand you may not do it in the way that you demand in fact you'll learn not to demand that God actually punishes your oppressors. You'll learn to pray for their souls, to live such good lives before them that on the day of the Lord they would bring glory to the Lord, that they would be more like Paul than Pharaoh, that they would come to a knowledge of the faith. But whether they do or they do not, that's above our pay grade. Ours, as equipped followers of the Lord, is to tell of His name, to teach of His commands, to express His gospel, and to live with what He provides for us right to the end, when God will sort it all out, wheat from tears, and his people will be with him forevermore, and there will be no more tears in our eyes, for the former pain will have passed away. Exodus chapter 7 is indeed carrying no obscure theme. That serpent-swallowing staff tapped on the Nile River reminds Pharaoh of his disobedience and reminds him of his call to obedience. And it reminds us of our great theme today, our need to obey, to pursue obedience. It's interesting to me in Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, that your English translation, at least mine does, yours goes the same way, ends with the word go. He refuses to let the people go. And then in verse 15, the sentence begins structurally with the word go. He refuses to let my people go. Go. He refuses to let my people go, go to Pharaoh. He refuses to let my people go, go to Pharaoh in the morning. He refuses to let my people go do what I've said they're supposed to do, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water to worship these false gods and declare himself one. Stand on the bank, tell him of my great power, I'll take care of the rest. There's something going on here, these signs confirming the word of God that would be written and given to us for our wielding and usage to share with all the disobedient, that some might come to Repentance. God is a good God, isn't he? God is a good God. God is not a weak God. God's not a controllable God. God is God. And he calls us that we'll be having our very actions weighed by him. First Samuel 2 says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. He weighs actions. He has a knowledge base that we don't have. It's not an exact science for us. He weighs actions. He's so knowledgeable. This Lord is so knowledgeable. So what we don't want to be is arrogant. What we don't want to be is talking proudly. Humility befits the righteous. We praise in our humbleness because by him actions are weighed. Seek him while he may be found. Knock and his door will be opened to you. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you more than you know how to care for yourself. He will redirect you toward obedience because he prepares and provides for you. And he promises to bring that justice that you think you have to ensure, but you really don't on the great day of the Lord. Exodus 7 testifies to that. There is no serpent that will stand against our God. I'm reminded of the words of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Delivery from fear of death, delivery from the serpent, that sea creature, the devil, delivery from the one that ensnares us because of our great Savior that stared the fear of death right down And though knowing no sin, became sin on a cross for us. He's good to us. Doesn't he need to bring us into his family? To make us a part of his forevermore? And so we do gather to worship him today and to thank him that way. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? God, I ask that...